Hello and welcome to the BTO podcast. I'm Greg, one of the BTO's Youth Advisory Panel members, and I'm here in a socially distanced recording studio just outside Cambridge with new Chief Executive Officer of BTO, Juliet Vickery, and outgoing Chief Exec, Andy Clements. Juliet, do you want to take a moment to introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks very much, Greg, and great to be here. Um, so my name's Juliet Vickery. I am uh, delighted to be taking over as the new CEO of the British Trust for Ornithology. So I spent the last 11 years working for the RSPB, another wonderful organisation, um, leading a team of researchers working in international conservation issues. And before that, I actually worked for the BTO leading their work on farmland birds and farmland bird conservation. So really fantastic to be back. And Andy, tell us a bit about yourself. Thank you, Greg. I'm Andy Clements. I'm the outgoing chief executive of BTO. I've been here 13 years, just over 13 years, actually. And of course, when I took on this role, I used to say to people that it was the dream job uh, for somebody who has had a career in conservation. I still think that now. I'm sad to be leaving, but it's definitely time for a new challenge for me, but also new challenges for the BTO. And I'm really confident that Juliet will be able to lead the BTO in wonderful new uh, and exciting directions. Great, and thank you both for uh, talking to me. So today we're going to talk to Juliet and Andy uh, about what they've been up to before and um, what's coming next for the BTO. We, as a youth advisory panel, have been working with BTO during 2020. And one of the things we've done together as a group of 10 young people is develop a few questions that we want to ask Juliet and Andy. We are going to be looking back at Andy's time with the BTO and also looking forward to what Juliet will bring to the role of Chief Executive in the future. Let's start by getting to know you both a little bit better. Um, can you tell me how you both got into birding and science? Maybe Andy, you want to go first? Yeah, thanks very much, Greg. I've always been a birder ever since I was seven years old and noticing birds in the garden. But actually, my career has involved both science. So I was trained as a scientist. I did a PhD and a postdoc. And then I always wanted to work in conservation. So following my academic period, I then worked for the government's Nature Conservation Agency for 25 years. And of course, the job at the BTO arose. Uh, I applied for it and I was really eager to get it because it brought together both those elements of science and conservation. And of course, it was about birds, which was my passion. And Juliet, what about yourself? So like Andy, I was um, always fascinated by the natural world um, as a child and um, also very interested in conservation. But my sort of move into the birding world, I think, was just a stroke of fantastic luck, really. So as an undergraduate at Oxford, I chose an undergraduate project on swifts nesting in the University Museum Tower. I had a uh, supervisor who was a wonderful scientist and ornithologist, Chris Perrins. And that um, project taught me two things, really. The first was how, in this case, quite simple data can reveal some really fascinating patterns about the world around us. And the second was how closely linked these birds were to their environment. So the study was about um, essentially egg laying and weather. And that led me to become very intrigued by the way in which birds provide um, potentially great indicators of the world around them. And I went on from that to do a PhD also with Chris Perrins on waterway birds in southwest Scotland. 
studying mainly dippers, which remain my absolute favourite bird to this day, um, and learning a lot about uh, my field skills and, and birds, actually from BTO volunteers, so ringers who help me catch these birds on the waterways, and waterway bird surveyors who you know, basically showed me their patch uh, and helped me to, um, to study the, the breeding of these species. And the rest is history. That was me hooked on birds, really. Great. Thank you very much. Uh, Andy, so you've been at the helm of BTO for 13 years. I wondered if you could tell us a bit about how it feels to leave after all that time. Um, what will you miss and, and what's been your highlights? Thanks. Thanks very much, Greg. Yeah, I might get emotional when I'm talking <laughs> about this, of course, uh, because, you know, apart from anything else, I, I will be sad to leave the BTO. It's been an extraordinary period. Working in conservation uh, and the environment, um, one meets daily passionate and committed staff. And that enabled, has enabled me for 40 years to get out of bed every morning with excitement about the, the job and the work ahead. And I think it's that ability to work with wonderful people in the organisation. And as Juliet just said, not only the staff inside our organisation, but the trustees who give their time voluntarily, and most of all, the 50,000 volunteer bird watchers with whom the BTO, we're nothing without, without those people. And their commitment, uh, their, their abilities, their skills, uh, and their willingness to be part of the endeavour together with our professional scientists is a really extraordinary thing and quite a unique aspect of our organisation, not just in the UK, but globally. One of the things I do is I teach uh, annually at the Masters in Conservation Leadership with the Cambridge Conservation Initiative. We're a partner in that collaboration. And the international students that come to that master's course every year, 20 of them from around the globe, they are always astonished at the skill and level of endeavour we have from volunteer bird watchers and volunteer wildlife watchers in the UK. And for the BTO to be able to harness that potential is a truly wonderful thing. Mm. Well, with that in mind, Juliet, how do you feel about taking over from uh, Andy over the next couple of weeks? Gosh, yes. Well, lots of emotions going on, really. So, I mean, hugely excited, first of all. I mean, it's a fantastic opportunity and um, so very excited about it. Um, I'd be lying if I didn't say I was also a little bit, a uh, little bit daunted by it. Andy's a very tough act to follow. Um, but I think the overwhelming sense is one of huge privilege, really. So to have been trusted with a position um, of in an organisation that has, you know, almost a 90 year history of doing amazing things. Uh, this tremendous partnership between professional and citizen scientists, which has stood the test of time and which, you know, single handedly allows us to understand the state of our, our nature uh, across Britain. I mean, that's amazing. So the, the chance to be, I think, as I've already said, part of working with staff, with members, with trustees to shape the next phase of the BTO's future um, is a huge privilege and one that I feel deeply honoured uh, to have been trusted with. Mm, that's great to hear. Uh, thank you both. And um, it's really exciting that we've got uh, two people with such a passion for the organisation's purpose, but also just for birding in themselves. I'm sure we'll hear some more of your stories, Andy. Um, so let's take a moment to just maybe look back, Andy, on, on some of the things you've been involved with while you've been chief executive at BTO. Um, 
what's the most exciting project that you think you've managed to get off the ground uh, and get your teeth into while you've been at the top of the organisation? Yeah, thanks, Greg. Um, I find these sorts of questions quite difficult in terms of speaking from my own my own perspective, because above all else, what I have tried to achieve and what I feel we have achieved is to put a team together that delivers amazing uh, results, uh, both outcomes for biodiversity, but also um, good results for the organisation and, and its future. Clearly, things like um, the membership rising by 50% in the last decade um, is an important uh, uh, achievement for the organisation. In the, in the early few years, I was very fortunate to arrive when the, um, the recording of data for the BTO's new atlas of breeding and wintering birds uh, was just taking shape. So I inherited that project, really. All the hard work, or much of the hard work, had already been done by others. And the leadership by Rob Fuller, Professor Rob Fuller at the time, um, who was one of the directors of science, and Dawn Barmer, who is still with us and leading the regional network and surveys uh, work at the BTO. You know, their leadership of that Atlas project was formidable. And um, it, it, was a, it was a wonderful time to arrive. So as I say, my first year was 2007, and that was also the first year of data collection by all the volunteers for the Atlas. And it was, it was an interesting atlas in the sense that it was the first time we'd done both summer and wintering birds at the same time. So when the book was published in 2013, we ran an event at the Royal Society in London. And um, it, was, it was just a tremendous event. And it really gave me the sense of the support we had from a wide range of uh, policy makers, decision makers, um, volunteers, bird watchers, um, other NGOs in the in the sector, who were relying on that data. And I think one of the things it taught me was that I will always say that BTO is a conservation organisation, and I know others have different views. But the the reason I say that is because much of conservation couldn't achieve what it does achieve without the underpinning data and evidence that is provided by BTO and fundamentally provided by the volunteers who gather all the data. So the launch of that atlas and the fact that we published that book ourselves, we did look at other publishers who produce beautiful products, but we decided to go it alone. And that was a risk, but it was a really good risk to take. And it has driven our, our publishing capability uh, ever since. And some of the things that BTO has produced in in terms of publications, have really assisted our communications with a much wider audience. And then, as I think about the last few years at the BTO, one of the most exciting things, and you'll be pleased to hear this, Greg, I'm sure, is our engagement with the, with the young birders and the young people of today, who, let's face it, are going to be the leaders of the future. We feel very privileged at the BTO that that we have a youth advisory panel of which you're a member with 10 young people uh, passionate about the environment, passionate about the role of science and evidence and data 
in taking forward initiatives uh, in favour of nature as recovery for the future. And the work that our team at the BTO, including Faye, have led with um, young people, I think has been transformational for the organisation. And one of the things that has always been at the front of my mind is while we appeal, while we need to appeal to a broader audience, we mustn't forget the the um, people at the centre of the organisation that have been our loyal supporters, some of them for 40 or even 50 years. And what what's been really gratifying is when we've chosen to feature young people and work with young people, we've had lots of messages from our core supporters that this is an amazing thing to be doing and they're really proud of the organisation for doing it. So somehow or other, the BTO seems to have pulled off a trick of keeping our loyal supporters happy and engaging new a new and broader audience. There's still much more to do, but we're on the way. Yeah, we're definitely on the way. Thank you, Andy. And I know we're, we're working on expanding our work with young people and having connecting more young people across the country um, with BTO's existing networks of, of staff and regional representatives. So hopefully that will uh, continue into the future. Andy, tell us a bit more about any of your favourite memories from your time as BTO Chief Executive. This is a really great question because, you know, we've talked about projects that have been successful and that kind of thing. But the memories are always going to be about the people. And um, one of the nice things, and we won't be doing it this year, unfortunately, because of the pandemic, is the annual conference that we have at Swanwick. And there we meet 400 members of the BTO and we have a very good time. There's a conference and, and lots of socialising. And one of my favourite memories from that is that late into the night, and it's always late into the night, round about midnight, you know, you take your jacket off, you sit down on the sofas with a group of BTO staff, out comes the wine and the whiskey and the cheese and the crackers. And sometimes we're there till four o'clock in the morning, just shooting the breeze together. And, you know, for me, that's really important because engaging with staff in an informal way you know, it's a really important thing. And then the second thing is, one of the big deals for our year is when we go to the bird fair. Once again, this year, we haven't been able to do that. But what I've really liked about the bird fair is working on the stand with BTO staff. It's an opportunity for volunteers to come and sit down and chat and uh, members and supporters to sit down and chat with me as the chief executive, just like any other member of staff. And I've loved those times. You know, it's been exciting meeting all sorts of people, um, sitting down with Chris Packham as the president, then with Frank Gardner as the president, um, previous people that have supported BTO like Barbara Young coming and sitting on the stand and chatting to staff with me just as much as with any other member of staff. Those are the kind of things I'm going to miss. So Andy, you've spoken a bit about those people you've met during your time as chief executive at, at Swanwick and at events like Bird Fair. I'm sure some of them are wondering what's next for you. So do you have plans? Yeah, um, it's a big question, isn't it, when you leave uh, uh, an organisation like this, having been in the leadership role. Um, and, you know, for me, um, it is retirement in a way. 
Um, but I have a fear, you know, of being that old guy walking down the street in their slippers to collect the newspaper every day. And somehow or other, I don't think that's quite me. Um, and for one thing, I don't think I've finished trying to make a contribution to conservation. As many people know, I have a board position with Natural England, uh, which lasts for another couple of years. And uh, as a non-executive there, I chair their science committee and I chair the Partnership for National Nature Reserves. And those are two very rewarding aspects of that role. I won't take another full-time role, as, as far as I can tell at the moment anyway, uh, but I will wish to carry on um, contributing as, as I can to ensuring the recovery of nature for which I remain passionate about. Great, and I'm sure you'll um, you'll stay in touch with the BTO and remain involved in birding yourself. Yeah, I will. You know, I am a birder first and foremost. Those who know me will know that I'm a kind of all sorts of birder. So I do uh, various surveys for the BTO. I have my own breeding bird survey squares. Um, I did Atlas work, uh, and of course I use BirdTrack. BirdTrack is our app on the phone for recording all bird observations and um, making those bird observations available as a body of scientific data. Um, and it's a really nice thing for a birder to be able to do is record those lists. Uh, I do that more or less daily, actually, uh, find a bit of time. We've just done a walk around Milton Country Park before coming into this studio. I did a bird track list while we were walking along and talking. So um, I will remain in contact with BTO and follow its fortunes really closely. And I think Juliet and I have a handover over the next uh, few weeks. And I'm sure we'll do a lot of talking about the future of BTO too. Great. Thank you very much. I'm sure we haven't seen the last of you yet. <laughs> Juliet, coming to you now, tell me about a project that maybe you're looking forward to being involved with or maybe an idea that you have that you want to get off the ground. Yeah, thanks, Greg. I mean, there are lots, there always are, and then you, you know, obviously have to prioritise. But, I mean, firstly, it would be fantastic to to build on so much that, that you know, Andy, the senior leadership team, trustees and staff, and, you know, have already put in place. There are lots of fabulous initiatives. And um, certainly, for me, I've always been very um, committed to increasing the diversity, inclusiveness and equality of, of you know, the birding world, if you like, Um so I'm currently president of the British Ornithologist Union and we work quite hard to make everything that we do there um, as open and inclusive as possible. Uh, the BTO have already done some, some wonderful things around this too. So I think broadening our reach, uh, finding ways to appeal to everyone, anywhere, you know, whatever their age, socioeconomic background, all of those things, um, that's something I feel very committed to and very passionate about. Um, and I'm very much looking forward to building on the work the BTO has already done in that direction. Um, and the second, uh, so it's not a specific project, obviously, you know, it's day one, so, um, but a more general thing, um, which is, um, again, hearkening back to things that, that Andy's already said around the impact of BTO work. So I think the BTO already has huge impact, um, but it remains um, maybe a little bit of a, a well-kept secret. I think, you know, just making that work better known, um, us all speaking up about it, being proud about being part of it, so claiming that impact that we already have and looking to ways to improve it and increase it. 
So that might be, for example, thinking about issues you know, in the near future that we should be galvanising our data around so we're ready to answer questions when they're needed. Uh, it may just be different ways of articulating um, the work we're doing, forming different relationships with decision makers or other partners, but just thinking about how we really make this fantastic data that the BTO um, is a steward of um, more available and more impactful um, in terms particularly of environmental decision making. And of course, you know, next year um, it's going to be a huge year for the environment and we need to be centre stage um, in terms of the data that we deliver for that. So I think, you know, connecting more people and having a bigger impact are the general sort of projects I'd, I'd love to um, help find ways for the BTO to do. And do you think there's anyone in particular or any group that we need to connect with better um, as an organisation or connect the volunteers with? Well, I think, I mean, as Andy said, you know, um, the next generation, your generation, um, are clearly extraordinarily important uh, to the future of BTO work um, and forging links between um, the younger generation and the older generation, you know, learning from each other. I think that's really important. I have a, a, a daughter at university and I'm very aware that I'm quite out of touch. There are new ways of doing things. I need to learn how to do that. Um, so I think that's one thing. And of course, many of the underrepresented groups, we've, we know we've learnt in COVID um, how unequal access to nature is um, across the UK and thinking hard about how we make nature more accessible, particularly to people in, in urban areas um, uh, and connecting in different ways in that sense, I think is also really important. Great. Yeah, I think we've definitely, we as a youth advisory panel, have definitely been thinking about those kinds of issues as well. Um, exacerbated by the pandemic so it's good to hear that that would be a focus Andy do you have anything to add about that the importance of that work yeah well, what I want to come back on is some of the things that Juliet's just said one one of the most exciting aspects of handing the baton to Juliet is that I really feel with her scientific expertise and knowledge and her passion for impact this will make a, a significant difference to the work of BTO in the future. We've always been an organisation that has steered a steady course um, down the middle of controversial issues without fear or favour. We will take on difficult controversies and what we do with that is provide evidence that informs those issues so that uh, they can be debated in a more balanced and inclusive way. And I know from Juliet's previous work at the BTO and her work at the RSPB that she's going to be able to deliver a real difference to the impact BTO's work has in the future. Great. So, Andy, what lessons have you learned from leading teams and organisations like the BTO? This is a very interesting question because um, while we're passionate and energetic as leaders, we need to be realistic too that leadership can at times be very tough. Um, as chief executive, what I've learnt is that you're always in the spotlight. You know, the buck really does stop with the chief executive. The trustees are very helpful and supportive and BTO is very lucky to have wonderful trustees on, it, on its board that have been incredibly supportive both to me as an individual, but also to the senior team and the, the organisation as a whole. But when you think about the strategy of the organisation for the future, when you reflect on being out there, uh, leading the BTO in the community of stakeholders that we have, some of whom are our friends, some of whom 
come to us because they don't necessarily agree with with what we want to do or the way we want to do it and you reflect on looking after the staff you know I'm responsible as the chief executive for 120 people's livelihoods and that focuses the mind so while it's a very exciting and energetic role and forward-looking and we achieve a lot in leadership we have to be realistic that it's not the easiest job in the world and I think what I've learned is that so long as you continue to learn and you reflect on the things that you learn it does get better and better. And Juliet what have you learned from previous challenges that you'll be able to bring to the BTO? Well I think the first thing I have to say of course is that I haven't I've led teams but not organizations and I recognize I have an awful lot to learn so early on uh, as CEO, I'll be very much about listening, understanding, getting to know staff and also trustees and members and supporters. So a lot of learning to do. The three things I think I'd like to say that I've learned from leading teams in the past that I'm really determined to bring into this role is, um, first of all, the huge importance of understanding your staff and listening to your staff. So I really believe that good leaders know their staff. The second thing is... Um, being open and honest and transparent as a leader and accessible as a leader. And again, I think um, whilst I've only led teams, and obviously that's much more difficult when you step up to leading an organisation, the joy of the BTO is that it's, you know, the size that does allow you to, to really get to know your staff. So that's the second thing. And then I think the third thing is that, of course, you have to make bold decisions sometimes, and those bold decisions are very rarely ones that everyone will welcome. So having the courage to make those decisions Knowing they're the right ones, I think, is also a lesson I will carry forwards to my my future with the BTO. Great. Thank you very much. And I'm sure there'll be plenty of challenges waiting for you in uh, Andy's footsteps. Andy, let's uh, take take a few steps back to your time as chief executive again. And I wonder if you could tell me about uh, this might be a little bit of a difficult question, but one thing that you think you would have done differently. Yeah, this is one of the difficult questions because there are lots of things I think I should have done differently. Um, and it's a bit dull in a way, but organize it. when you're in, when you're in the, the top leadership role at an organisation, what we've been talking about so far is, is the content of the work that the organisation undertakes and the results it achieves with it. But that doesn't happen by magic. That happens as a result of the organization functioning in a in a proper way and for too long I think at the BTO we have done well on strategy and we've done well on the external aspects of our work but we we still have a difficulty in translating our ideas into operational achievement and that requires a, a careful you know, complete a finisher mind to, to get the operational processes in place in the organisation that make everybody's job easier. We're an organisation kind of on the edge. We never have quite enough cash. Um, we have too much work. Um, our, our staff are too stressed by the amount of work they have. We don't quite have the capacity that we need. We're, we're wonderfully well off for capability in all walks of, of the organization's life. But my main kind of feeling that where I haven't achieved what, what I should have achieved for the organization 
is is that underpinning operational processes that enable everybody's working life to be easier uh, their work life balance to be in good shape and and therefore their mental health and well-being um we 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 take account of all of that and recently we've had the arrival of superb leadership on the people side with Sean Knott, our head of people and organizational development and it it became apparent over the last couple of years with her there how much we've been trying to do that on a shoestring and not very well and i'm really hopeful that as juliet takes over we have the capacity to uh, change the nature of that aspect of our work but i kind of wish we'd started that earlier on in my time juliet you spoke a bit about impact and how we can make sure that bto's work um really has a, a real world application what do you think you'll bring to the role of chief executive that will help make that happen well i think for lots of people we come into any any role really with um our background knowledge and experience and i suppose what you might call character traits really and so for me i've had a, a very lucky and wonderful uh, uh 30 odd years in conservation science some in academia um and some in ngos so i have uh, i think a deep knowledge and understanding of the scientific process um asking the right questions being able to gently challenge where you need to um and um also of communicating that science so i'm a very um passionate and keen communicator of science i i enjoy that and i think it's hugely important so i have um a background in science and the scientific process um and um also experience in communicating that and that's the one thing i would say and i've worked for quite a long time on this so-called science policy interface how to make that science impactful how to um ask the right questions that policymakers or practitioners need to answer um and to communicate and build relationships with those people using that information at the end so science and the science policy interface i would say is experience that i would bring to the role and then i suppose as a sort of character trait so i i think i would be described as being an enthusiastic and energetic leader and i absolutely intend to remain enthusiastic and energetic um for the bto cause um and i have a deep passion for for birds for the natural world and for the 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 value of science and understanding and conserving that so of course we all know that the um you know the fight is a hard one there is lots to do um and you need to stick at it and um I'm pretty determined. I don't give up easily. Um and so I think that would what I would say I'd bring some some scientific knowledge and a lot of passion and energy to the cause. Good to hear. Thank you very much. So as a youth advisory panel, we've been thinking a lot about how to engage young people with BTO's mission um with birding and with citizen science. What do you think organizations like BTO need to do to involve and include more young people in in those activities? Yeah, very good question. Um inevitably from you I suspect. Um and I think the short answer is that I'm not entirely sure, but I am a fundamental believer in um the way in which to engage underrepresented groups, whoever they are, and I think youth are certainly in much of the the BTO's work at the moment is to talk to those groups to understand their perspective, to recognize um that from from my position I probably won't understand it. What are the barriers? um to getting involved how do we overcome those barriers um how to become more inclusive more relevant more exciting um to that to those the youth group in this case so i think uh i'm almost going to throw the question back to you and say you know 
that's why we have a youth advisory panel. I'm really looking forward to seeing the strategy that you've come up with, hearing about your ideas, and then talking about how we get those ideas into practice as quickly as we can, really, um, and start to build up that interest and momentum in the younger generation. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, we've been thinking a lot about um, those issues of talking to young people and finding out what works for them, and then also breaking that down and saying youth may be an underrepresented group, but there are also others and there are smaller, you know, there are subgroups and intersectional issues even among young people, and we can't reach everyone with the same broad approach. So I think we're getting somewhere. I mean, we, as a youth advisory panel, are only 10 people, and we are, um, we represent some groups, but we're still uh, reaching out to other people and building a network of youth representatives around the country to try and um, tap into more existing connections and um, reach more young people who want to get involved in BTO's work. Andy, have you got any thoughts based on your interactions with others as a youth advisory panel for the last uh, calendar year and um, any of your other work with BTA? Yes, um, thanks, Greg. This is such an important area, and I really echo uh, what Juliet's already said in, in, in response to your question. When we've been working with the young people, we've learnt two very important things, I think, about our ability to engage a, a wider audience of different communities as well as young people. The first thing is about role models. If people like you, Greg, don't see yourselves in the community of birdwatching and science and see that there are people like you who are able to influence what organisations are doing, then I guess it's very difficult for you to maintain momentum or indeed engage with the, with the whole issue. And when we've been working with the youth advisory panel and our youth representatives that are going to be helping us regionally, uh, we've really learned about that. And, and you are actual role models for other people to engage with us. And then the second thing, and this works as well more widely with equality, diversity and inclusion, We've, we've noticed that it's really important to listen to the real experiences of those individuals. And with equality, uh, we have an equality and diversity working group at the BTO, chaired by Jamie Redway, one of our young members of staff. Um, she did an opinion piece in BTO News. And one of the kind of disturbing things is that that attracts... Um, uh, dissent from social media and people that kind of don't understand and what we really feel is important is by recognizing the real experiences of people like Jamie uh, growing up as a woman of color in in this sector that's a powerful thing for us to learn from and we push back on those uh, people that come to us and say this isn't important, it's not what BTO should be doing. We really think that those two things, role models that, that people can relate to in the sector and listening to those valuable feelings and experiences of people as they've grown up uh, in an underrepresented group are the most important things that we do to enable us to do better in this space. It's interesting, isn't it? I think one of the most important things is the listening and how easy it is to uh, listen for a short while and then think you know everything. And you just have to remember that even as you begin to put things in place to try and tackle some of those issues, you still need to be listening as how they mm. how they uh, are responded to and, and who's not being reached by them. Yeah, and, and you know, 
for a leader, for myself as the, the leader of BTO, it's kind of quite scary to let the youth advisory panel loose with our trustees. But what an exciting and, you know, wonderful thing it was to see that happen and to know that um, you guys are going to teach us things that we didn't know before and are going to help us move forward. And I think the trustee response when you came to the board with your ideas and you're coming to the board again uh, with a strategy in, in December, you know, that's a very exciting thing to see. Great. I, I just wanted to pick up, uh, Julia, on something you mentioned earlier, actually, which is that idea of the um, generational divide. And Andy mentioned about uh, how people often don't get involved in things like birding or, or science because they don't see someone like themselves. And how do you think we can we can tackle that divide? Because there is a risk, obviously, that we end up with lots of very young people and lots of older people who, who don't talk to each other, particularly if they're volunteers and they, only, they spend their own time, uh, you know, on, on BTO activities. Yes, that's a very good question too. I, I think some of it is about, um, again, breaking down barriers. And we often think it's about, it's a one-way thing, but it's both, isn't it? I mean, many of us, I would say, including myself, you know, there are ways in which um, the next generation communicates and engages, which is very new to me um, and not second nature. Um, I need to learn about those, but perhaps also the reverse is true. There are many of the sort of the older field skills, perhaps the, the knowledge that comes from years of being out in the field and in knowing your patch, if you like, um, that 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 we can teach younger, um, younger ornithologists. And, and it's finding ways in which you can bring them together. I mean, they don't really exist, I don't think, at the moment. So many of us would have learnt from our parents um, um, or, a, you know, an older relative, perhaps. Um, and how much of that happens now, I'm not sure. But I think it's just trying to find ways to bridge that divide in both directions. And, um, you know, younger younger people are quite scary for older people, too, actually. <laughs> and and it's about, it's about just finding ways to communicate better and, and recognise there are differences. And we can learn from each other. Um, in both directions yeah I totally agree and I think hopefully some of the work we're doing with with uh, youths in in areas around the country will help start building those connections um, um, at the very least to make sure we don't lose the knowledge of those uh, those older members who who have a lot to pass on and maybe don't have anyone to pass on to at the moment let's finish with a, a slightly more light-hearted question um, I'll put you both on the spot you've had a little bit of time to think about this so uh, no no excuses um, Andy first if you could be one bird um, what would you be and why okay this is really tricky Greg come on it's uh, it's a tough one the toughest question of, of the podcast I think so yeah I've thought about this and you know there are a number of, of species of bird that I think would be quite fun to be and what I've alighted on is that I'd like to be a dotterel so for those of you out there that don't know what a dotterel is, it's a wading bird, first of all, a shorebird essentially, and they're my favourite group of birds. And dotterels are very interesting. So they breed in uh, the north of, um, of the world. Uh, in, there's a few in the highest reaches of the Cairngorms in Scotland and our highest mountains in the UK, but predominantly they breed in Scandinavia up on the tundra and I kind of really like birding in in that part of the world I like being in that part of the world for part of the year but of course they're great travelers too and when they migrate they go down to southern Europe and North Africa uh, I've seen them on 
I've seen dotterel in the winter on the Canary Islands. Uh, so, you know, they like a bit of sun too, uh, and I like that as well. And then one of the most interesting things about dotterel, and, you know, this might be a bit of a cliche to say it, but they have reversed uh, 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 gender roles. So females uh, choose their male mate, uh, they're mated, the females lay the eggs, then they shoot off uh, and maybe go go off with another male, leaving the original male to incubate the eggs and look after the young. And what I like about that is there's a message in there that, you know, we need some gender equality uh, around the birding world and uh, I would be a dotterel because I could carry on kind of making the case for that, really. Great. I'm glad you've thought so much into it. I'll let everyone listening decide, uh, read into that more. Juliet, what, what about you? What bird would you be and why? Well, I really loved thinking about this question because, of course, there are so many wonderful birds living in wonderful places. Um, I've already said, of course, my, my favourite bird will forever be the dipper. But, of course, dippers are constrained to life on a fairly short stretch of rushing water and that might not suit me too well. So I think in the end, the, the bird I came down on wishing I could be uh, would be a swift. And of course, swifts are supremely adapted to life on the wing. Some of them spend 10 months of 12 months of the year in flight, uh, feeding on the wing, of course, but also mating and sleeping on the wing. They travel to wonderful places. So every year um, south to the African continent. And we know from tracking data, much of it BTO data, that they'll um, head down the west coast of the African continent and then across to the east before returning. And, um, of course, when you see parties of screaming swifts you know, here in the UK, I mean, they just look like they're having fun. So I think on all those counts, a swift would be the, the bird I'd like to be. Fantastic. Thank you both. Sorry for putting you on the spot with such an evil question. I think we will leave today's uh, interview there. So I'm, all that remains is for me to thank you both for spending some time with us. Uh, Andy, do you want to say goodbye yourself? Yeah, thanks very much indeed, Greg. It's been really enjoyable experience and it just increases the excitement I have for the, f for the fact that Juliet is going to be leading the BTO to new and greater things. No pressure, Juliet. Do you want to say anything before we go? So, as I've said, obviously, I'm hugely excited about the future, but it's perhaps also worth just acknowledging that I recognise it's also quite a challenging time for many organisations um, and particularly environmental uh, conservation charities. It's a tough time. There will be challenges. I recognise that there will be challenges. But um, frankly, I'm just enormously excited about taking them on. Yeah, it's great to have you on board. Well, thank you both for taking the time to talk to us today. That's been a really interesting insight to the two of you and the future of the BTO. Thanks to everyone at home for listening. And if you want to find out more about Juliet, Andy, the BTO, or the work of the Youth Advisory Panel, you can visit the BTO website, bto.org, or follow the BTO on social media and read the BTO blog. <laughs>